Welcome to All About Capital Campaigns, a podcast that provides fuel for your nonprofit's growth. Each week, hosts Andrea Kilstedt and Amy Eisenstein, co-founders of the Capital Campaign Toolkit, provide practical tips about raising more money for your nonprofit organization. The Capital Campaign Toolkit is a support system for nonprofit leaders who are running capital campaigns. At CapitalCampaignToolkit.com, you can download a step-by-step guide for your capital campaign and get many other free resources. This podcast is recorded on a live webinar every Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time. You can join the live session and get your questions answered by signing up today at ToolkitTalks.com. We're talking about training and to make this very live and present to me, I did a training, a Zoom training on Saturday morning for a Habitat for Humanity. And it was a three hour training. And it, the first two hours were about capital campaigns and how they run and how they function. And the last hour was about how to solicit gifts. And I, I decided that I wanted to use the design for that training to really see if I could if I could solidify a training design that would work over a long, long haul for the capital campaign toolkit. And I went back through my many notes and files over many years to remember good training design practices. And the thing to know about training, and this is what we want to kick off with, is that really good training is not telling anybody much of anything. Really good training is drawing from the people you're training the concepts that you want them to articulate. Because most adults actually know a lot, right? They come to the table knowing a lot. It's to train adults is not like you're training third graders. It, you are training people who have a huge amount of experience, who actually already know how to do most of what we need to do in a capital campaign. We just need to provide them with an opportunity to make sense of it and to get them to make sense of it. So. That's the way I set about designing this training. It was a, a terrific training, I think. Um, I got a lovely email actually from the from the executive director. Um, I should have pulled it up because it was because it was so nice. And in over three hours, I'll just put a point on this. Over three hours, we had two, it was everybody was on Zoom. We had two 10-minute breaks at the top of each hour. And I covered about four very simple concepts in three hours. Now, why did it take three hours? Because the group was providing the information for the training, right? I wasn't just saying, well, here's a lecture. Here's what you need to know. I could have done that in three minutes, right? I could do that now for you in three minutes, but that's not a training. Amy, you've had a lot of training experience. Why don't you talk about what's important to you about training? What do you find? Yeah, so I I don't know if you mentioned this, and sorry, I'm jumping on a couple of minutes late. Uh, You told everybody I'm having a beach fiasco. Uh, Yes, I told them about dead whales and smelly smelly beaches, and and yes. Anyways, uh, 
Yeah, so uh, here, I'm delighted. This, this is work-life balance here, right here. This is an example of, of balancing it badly. But anyways, um, yeah, so, I, you know, I think one of the most important things I ever learned about training was sort of, uh, it was a class I was taking on how adults learn. And there was this amazing statistic about how if you hear something, um, then I'm outside, obviously, sorry. Um, if you hear something, th then you retain about 20% of the information that you actually hear. But if you say something, you will retain about 80%. And so the object of a good training is to get people talking and to come up with their own answers. They're much more likely to remember it if, you know, if they say something. So if you say, all right, how are we going to get um, board members engaged in, in fundraising or in train, you know, in, in asking for gifts? Instead of me telling them all the different ways that you can get board members to help, um, a good training, I would say, all right, let's come up with a list. Let's brainstorm. So if people have their own ideas about it, and of course, you're going to give them a little bit of information um, for things that they really don't know. But then you're going to do exercises and activities and have a discussion so that everybody can participate. Um, one of the really brilliant things that Andrea taught me to do years ago to close any good training is to, depending on the size of the group, but if at all possible, go around the room and ask people for a key takeaway or a key learning or something that they're going to follow up with, right? And so um, by them saying it, even at the end of the training, it reinforces it in their brain, even if they didn't come up with the idea originally, um, just by saying, all right, this is something I'm committing to doing. I actually like to, if it's a small enough group, have well, no matter what size the group, you can ask people to write down their three key takeaways and circle one that they want to share with the group. And so they're really, um, by writing it, by saying it, you're really reinforcing the message. All right, Andrea, back to you. Thank you. Now, while, while Amy and I chat more about training and talk about some exercises, we want you to chat in your questions. They don't have to be about training, but if you have questions about training, that would be that would be good. But I think some people actually come to this call with specific questions that you have in mind that you want to want us to wrestle with. So we'd be happy to do that. So so feel free to be typing in your questions. As you know, after a little while, we will pivot over to your questions and then the rest of the session will be will will be driven by by you and and your questions. But let so, me tell you. Yeah. Oh, I was going to say, you know what? The word training in and of itself is probably faulty. And so nobody wants to be trained, right? I mean, you train a dog. So no board member wants to sit through a training or be trained. The idea of, uh, you know, a senior high level person, whoever, you know, training is hard for adults. So I'm curious in the chat box to see if you've come up with or heard of any other good ways of describing uh, a training or a meeting where you're learning new concepts and having a meaningful discussion and exploring new techniques. Um, yeah, workshop, Lauren, thank you for Lauren, Lauren suggesting workshop. So um, mentoring, coach, coaching, facilitated learning. So keep them coming. We'll, we'll um, 
you know, an exchange of ideas, Susan says, um, an information session. So, yeah, so let's let's see if by the end of the hour we can come up with some better better terms for training. I think everybody's more willing to come to a discussion, um, a brainstorming. So, all right, Andrea, I cut you off. I see your question. um, Put your questions in the Q&A box. It's just easier to keep track of them because the chat goes by pretty fast for us. So, but I do see your your question, uh, Cindy, about what are the key stages of a campaign where you suggest formal board training. And let me let me come back to that. But answering this question about what to call training, I'm not sure that in, in many of the situations where we actually do train people, we need to call it anything. We just need to do it, right? <laughs> I think we should be doing it all the time. So one of the things that I did on this training, this Zoom training on Saturday, was that I, early on, I said, I'd like everybody, one after another, I'm going to call on you according to the order of the Hollywood squares. I want everyone to talk about about what you're raising money for and why it matters. Right? I want everybody to answer the same question. And we went around. There were about 15 people on the, on the call in the training. And it was so interesting to see what happened because you might imagine that they would all say exactly the same thing. Of course, they didn't all say the same thing. They listened to what the person before people before them had said, and they added something else. We're raising money to do such and such, and here's and here's why. And once we got through all 15, I had actually made a little list of all of those things, right? We then had a terrific list of things about why it mattered, what they were, what they were raising. Now, if if I had done that, if you had done that in the beginning of a board meeting, would people think that was a training? No. Do we have to tell them now we're going to do a training? No. We could have just begun or ended a board meeting that way. Right? It would have worked just fine. And and you should begin and end your board meetings or stick it in the middle. You know, always it should be a fundraising discussion. And as part of the discussion, it shouldn't be a fundraising report that you're doing at every board meeting. You should have a fundraising discussion. And as part of that, you do some training exercises. But you certainly, to Andrea's point, do not need to call it that. Yeah, you- it's so interesting how really you need to frame the questions and then then have a disciplined approach to engaging people in the conversation, right? And there are a bunch of simple ways to do that. And one of the things I did on Saturday is that I had them respond to something and then call on the next person, right? You you do that also, Amy. I mean, you, we try to try to switch it up, particularly in a Zoom call. You try to we try to switch it up so that we can. You know, it doesn't feel like it's the it, we're just sitting there yammering at people, right? And then people get people have a chance to pay attention to who on the call has already spoken and become more aware of one another, which I think is is really important. Um, I like to begin with an icebreaker that gives people a sense, a better sense of who they are, even when they know each other. So in this particular training, it's just fresh on my mind, so I'll just keep referring to it. I started by asking everybody, they all knew one another, but they, I didn't know them. So I said, listen, I'd like each of you to introduce yourselves, give about 30 seconds about yourself, and I want you to include your superpower. Now, that was really interesting because, because some of the people talked about their superpower as creating content, creating chaos, and some of the people said their superpower was making sense of chaos, right? So, 
So it was like there was this sort of awareness of who each of the people were that I suspect gave credence to what they knew about one another in a different in a different sort of way. And so my job was just to facilitate that conversation. All right. So let me just say, don't call it an icebreaker. You're always going to do an icebreaker. But if you put on the agenda icebreaker, just put introductions and welcome. Right. Right. You don't need to call it an icebreaker because plenty of people hate the idea of icebreakers and will come into it already sort of with their arms crossed and like, I'm not going to participate in no stupid icebreaker. Uh, So make sure that you don't just like you don't need to call it a training. You don't need to call it an icebreaker. So on all of my retreat agendas, it just says welcome and introductions. And of course, I'm going to do an icebreaker, but I don't call it that. Um, All right. So let's go back to Cindy's um, question here about what are the key stages of the campaign when you suggest formal board training? So Andrea, during a campaign, when are we going to insert some, when is it critical that we do some board training or board and volunteer? Let's, let's expand it to campaign volunteers too. Right. So I think there are at least two kinds of training that should happen during a campaign and they should happen for different groups. And sometimes you put the groups together and sometimes you don't. But the first, the first is that everyone should understand how capital campaigns work. Right. Everyone should your board should understand that this is not business as usual fundraising. Everyone should understand that campaigns rely extensively on a relatively few big gifts and that the whole beginning, the whole many months of the campaign is going to be based on on finding out who, who the who the people are who are going to give those and, and then asking them. Right. And that's a whole training in and of itself. I mean, of my training on Saturday, we spent two hours on that, just on that. Um, board members will want to know about their roles. So there should be some training early on. So because your board will be uncomfortable and anxious if they don't know what their roles are going to be. There's, so on one hand, they need to understand how a campaign works. Another training might be how what what's the what are the board roles, including board giving. What's going to be expected of me? Every board member wants to know that, and you can have a participatory process to help figure that out. But board members should have a chance to understand their roles as board as board members of the board as a whole, and they should understand what their what kinds of roles they might play in the campaign itself. So that might be a training, right? You could do smaller trainings broken out into, into little littler pieces. And finally, people who are going to be soliciting gifts should have some solicitation training. Now, it's true in most boards that only a relatively few people on your board are actually going to be active soliciting gifts. So I'm not sure you need a solicitation training for your entire board. But the first two you should do, and they should happen fairly early in the process. Um, I would imagine after the feasibility study and before you actually, or just as you were launching the planning phase of the campaign, you might want to think about training your board as a part of the planning phase of your campaign. In fact, Amy, do you think that's right? Yes, I do. It's like a comedy of errors here. I've got helicopters and construction going on. So I'm going to 
we can okay. I can't hear it anyway. All right, good. All right. Um, yes, no, I think that's right. And just to respond to some of the comments in the chat, um, uh, yes, of course, our team does all of these trainings, and we would be delighted to talk to you about a solicitation training, a training for your board early on in the campaign process to talk about roles and responsibilities and expectations and alleviate everybody's fear of a campaign, because I think it is fear-inducing uh, to think about a campaign for board members who really haven't been through one before are, or aren't sure what to expect. All right, we've got lots of questions coming in, Andrea. We were going to talk about um, some pros and cons of, of uh virtual versus in-person training. Um, maybe we can ask for some of those pros and cons in the chat box while we turn to some other questions and then we can turn our attention to that. Um, Misha says in the comments, uh, the issue with brainstorming is that people like me speak up easily while others tend to listen and we need to make sure that everybody's heard. And I think that that is such a good point, Misha. Yes. A good facilitator will make sure that everybody's heard. And, you know, some of the phrases that I like to use are, all right, let's now hear from someone we haven't heard from yet, or, you know, we're going to go around the table or, you know, take a minute to jot down some notes um, and then and then share your thoughts with the group. Andrea, what do you say when to make sure everybody gets to participate? Yeah, I mean, I think I think there really are a bunch of important skills to know. And I one of my favorites is take a few minutes and jot down whatever it is you want them to, to have. Right. And I often provide index cards when I do a training in person. Right. So everybody, everybody has has an index card that that way, everybody, whether they naturally speak out loud or not, has something to say. And it isn't based on what the person before them said. Right. So I like to do that. And then I like to either go around or have, you know, you can say, let's say, as Amy said before, you have three things on an index card, circle one that you want to share and you just go around and have everybody circle. That gets everyone, everyone participating. The other thing to do is you can easily pull people together in groups of three or four and get them to to sort out what it is they want to say. And a smaller, some people will will participate in a smaller group and they won't they won't raise their hand in a bigger group. So by switching up the configuration, you can get people to to um, to participate. On Zoom meetings, I very actively call on people. I just enjoy doing it and I think it works. And when you do a Zoom training, your competition is email. Right. That's just what happens. Right. People are sitting there at the computer. They have half an attention to you. Their email is in front of you. It looks like they're looking at you, but they're not. They're really they're really doing their email. If you call on them and if they see that you're going to be calling on them, they won't be as likely to do that because it's embarrassing to say, whoops, what was the question? I was doing my email. So so the more we call on people on people, the, the better it is. Um, another email, interesting Zoom trick, facilitation trick. As some last year, I think we organized. A, a, we got an improv group to organize a, a session on improv. Maybe some of you, some of you participated in that. It was actually quite fun. And what he did was he asked. He would ask for a couple of volunteers to do an improv exercise, and he would ask everyone else to darken to to turn off their videos. So only the people who were doing the exercise were were present visually. 
And then he would get everybody to come back in and he would darken more people's videos. I thought that was an interesting use of the use of the technology. Um, and they were fairly quick, but everybody could listen. Everybody could participate. But you could actually your attention was drawn to the people who were speaking. So that was interesting. Um, All right. Let's go to Susan's question. Susan's asking if your board hasn't been very involved in fundraising to date, what are the best training activities to start with? That's such a good question, Susan. I think lots of boards struggle with that, right? So to me, you know, one of the simplest, and actually, Andrea, this is from your book with Andy Robinson on how to train your board, is um, an A to, to Z brainstorm about gratitude opportunities. So if your board hasn't been involved in fundraising, to me, the easiest place to get them involved is with thanking and with stewardship and with follow-up. And so, Andrea, I don't, do you remember this activity? Do you know I what do. I'm talking about? I do. Yeah. I remember a trip to the zoo. <laughs> a trip to the zoo. So basically what you say is, you know, you get in small groups, maybe three or four people, depending on, and you can put people in breakout rooms if you're on Zoom so that everybody gets a chance to participate. And um, you say, all right, uh, you know, on your paper, write A to Z and come up with something that you're going to do for stewardship or gratitude. And, you know, we're just brainstorming. We're not actually going to do all of these things um, that starts with the first letter of each letter of the alphabet. So, you know, P might be for poem. You're going to send your donor a thank you poem or S to me, one of my favorite in a in a group I did was a superhero cape. We're going to send our donors a superhero cape, you know, and so and the list goes on and on. V for video, a thank you video. And you come up with all sorts of ideas. And then as a group, you come back together and you talk about what what were the most interesting or the craziest or the most memorable ideas. And you pick two or three out of the, you know, hundred that you've brainstormed uh, that you want to actually implement. So Kathy asked um, asked a great question that's, that I think is, is is has a funny answer. So Kathy says, when the board is very small, any ideas about how to stimulate how to stimulate the discussion? I have an idea. I would ask, how do we make this board bigger? That is exactly what I was going to say, Andrea. We had the exact same answer, so I know that is the right answer. Kathy, if your board is too small to have a discussion. Um, the discussion needs to center around how, how to recruit more board members and what skills and talents and uh, diversity you need on your board. And so that's the discussion. You know, if you only have three board members, you've got to knock heads. How can we get to five or seven or nine board members by the end of this year? Who do we need to recruit? What kind of skills and leadership and, and professions do we need on this board? If we don't have a lawyer or an accountant or a financial planner or a marketer, you know, or the list, or if we don't have any women or we don't have any men, we don't have any young people or old people, you know, um, all sorts of diversity and, and all sorts of issues to brainstorm. Who do we need to add to this board? You know, the, the key to stimulating discussion, there are two keys, there may be more, but two come to my mind. One is that you have to ask a real question. Right? You can't ask a phony question. Nobody wants to discuss a phony question. You have to ask a real question and then you need the structure so that people have a way of discussing it and reporting it out. And there are many ways to do that. 
But you can't just get a conversation going and have it go nowhere. It has to amount to something. Right now, one other way to get to get conversations going is that when one person, I mean, just to facilitate a conversation, when one person says something, you can then say, does anyone else share that thought? Has anyone else had that experience? And then if somebody else does, then you can say, well, what are we to make of that? What's the importance of this discussion? And what should we do with it? So as a facilitator, you can take one person's comment and you can then broaden it to the to the community. Someone says, I'm really anxious about raising money. You can say, is there anyone else in this group anxious about raising money? Five people raise their hands. Then you can say, wow, you know, half of us are anxious about raising money. What do you think the consequences of that are for our organization? Let them figure that out. Let them tell you. You don't have to tell them what the consequences. Let them tell you. And when they tell you, then you just ask the question, well, what do we do about that? Right. So your job is not telling them. Your job is asking the question, broadening the conversation to include everyone, and then pulling it back to next steps. Right. And that's a great, that's a great facilitator model, actually, to get one person to start and then you you shape the conversation to involve everybody. I always like that, like that way of doing it. It works. It takes a little practice to get good at it because you keep wanting to give the answers, right? I keep wanting to give the answers, right? It's easy to give the answers. Amy, yeah, we've lost, there you are. Are you saying? Oh, it's, it's hard as a facilitator not to give the answers, right? I mean, you have to use some real restraint. Right. Um, it's, it's a balance of time management and all sorts of uh, lot, lots of skills. You know, it's interesting. Nana's saying here in the Q&A sec- session about icebreakers um, that, you know, one of the ones that she uses is to have two members of the group interview each other and then introduce them each other to the group, um, which is wonderful if you have a lot of time. Um, and if you have a group that really doesn't know each other well. So, you know, you pick and choose, at least I think you should pick and choose your icebreakers and your activities depending on the group, depending on the format, depending on the goal of the, of the, so sometimes that's a super helpful and appropriate icebreaker. And sometimes, you know, you wouldn't do it because there isn't time or the group knows each other really well and a different one, a different quicker one would be more effective. Um, so... Yeah, you know, I could imagine if you have a have a board, let's say you're a statewide organization and you have people who come in and who don't get don't know one another well. They just come in for a board member meeting every quarter. I could imagine doing doing really putting aside some time so that people will get to know one another. And there are a bunch of of variation on that kind of exercise, but so you have to look and see when is it important that people get to know one another? When don't they know one another? one another so well. Um, Okay. As a follow-up, Susan asks, at what point in a board meeting is best for training activity? How about beginning, middle, and end? The beginning, because it's just good to get people talking. The middle, if you see people's eyes glazing over, it's a great time for for an exercise. And how you end a meeting really matters. You should always end a training or a meeting by getting everyone around the table to talk. Right? That's I mean, even if it's just a, a whip around, right? Get, it, get everyone to do a whip around activity. So it's not long, it's quick. But how people end meetings 
matters more than you might imagine. If they sort of, the meeting comes to a sleepy end and people kind of gather their stuff and wander off, it won't have half the effect as if people had to come up with, you know, three words that are most exciting words you thought of about this organization and get everyone to, to do well, that. I mean, one, one, word, one word, right? One, one word. word. Exactly. What's, what's, what's your the, word? Right. What's the most exciting word that you can describe our organization with and, you know, go around the room. It gets everybody talking. And, you know, if, if you think that three beginning, middle and end are a lot, you know, don't think of them as training activities. Just think of them as discussion topics, right? The middle of your meeting should have a discussion topic so that everybody gets a chance to participate. If your meeting is straight reports, it is death by death by death report. By report. <laughs> right. So Amy, you know, on the when our Wednesday group calls every once in a while, I start out by asking people to 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 name their favorite vegetable. And, and <laughs> that's really it's always funny. But what's neat about it actually is that is that you kind of get to know people by learning their favorite vegetable. <laughs> and it's, and it's yeah, I mean, <laughs> You can ask any question. I do like it when you do a soup, you know, what's your superpower, superpower right? What's your superpower? You know, that you can, you always ask, what's a word, one word that describes you using your first initial, you know, there's, there's so many activities and those are just very first activity of the day gets everybody talking. And it's more likely if they've used their voice in the meeting that they will continue to use their voice. If somebody comes in and doesn't say anything at the beginning, it's much harder for them to have the courage to speak up. But if they've already said something, then they're more likely actually to talk during the meeting. So um, yeah, so Susan saying, unfortunately, I have very little influence on the agenda and struggle to get 10 minutes for an activity. Um, I mean, if listen, I always say that I can look at a board meeting agenda and if fundraising is last, I know how it's prioritized at the organization, right? I mean, it's a real clear signal to every board member that fundraising is the least important thing. It comes last when people are leaving early, people can sneak out. Um, and if they're only giving you 10 minutes or less, it's not a priority. And so you can point that out to the powers that be, the board chair, the executive director and say, you know, I'm curious, fundraising seems to be important around here. And yet it only gets, you know, 15 minutes at the board meeting or 10 minutes at the board meeting and it's last. What if we shake up the agenda and make it you know, first or second or right in the middle. Um, and, and and you may not be able to get that message across, but if but you may want to go to the the board member who is the head of your development committee. Right. You may want to plant the seed somewhere else. Sometimes as a as a staff member, you don't have the clout or the power to make those changes. But if the person who heads up your development committee is is willing and is is on board. Right. Sometimes you need to get someone else to carry the water. As That's the way I think about it. Right. You have something you want to get done. You can't always get it done. You have to get someone else to be the person to bring that up. And it's amazing, actually, when you think about that, how powerful a role it is. Yeah, so, so great to have board members bring up these tough issues rather than you as a staff member. If you know feel, someone feels the same way or would be a good advocate, um, I want to respond to Daniel in the comments. You're saying uh, if there's no development committee on the board, it's another signal. So to me, 
you know, not having a development committee is not always a problem. I just tell the whole board that they are the development committee. I say, look, you know, until we get sophisticated with fundraising, the whole board is the development committee. And during a board meeting, we're going to have a mini a mini development meeting. You know, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. It depends on the culture of the organization. But that's my way around it. I say, look, there's no development committee. That means the whole board or you know, on purpose, we don't have a development committee because it's everybody's responsibility here. So I try and use it to my advantage. So Carol has asked this question. Please discuss your thoughts on ideal leadership traits for a campaign chair, acknowledging that there are many diverse and strong opinions on the board about the best way to run a campaign. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the answer is that that's important. Yes, it is important. And so when you say there are many diverse best ways to run a campaign, that says to me that you need a board training. Right. That you need a training because there aren't many best ways to run a campaign. There is a right way to run a campaign and a wrong way to run a campaign. And your board members have to somehow figure out how to how to do that. When you're really in trouble is when you have a board, a campaign chair, and I've had this happen, who thinks that the best way to raise money is to send out brochures to everybody and hope that people send their money in. So you don't want a campaign chair who really doesn't know what they're doing. Right. That's just I mean, you can't let that happen or everything's going to go to hell in a handbag. Um, it, in terms of, of leadership traits, so let's, let's just you and I brainstorm and maybe other people can brainstorm too in the chat. What do you think are the leadership traits that you need for, for a campaign chair? And I would, my favorite of all of them always is that it needs to be someone who does what they say they're going to do. You don't want a vanishing campaign chair, someone who talks a big game you know, swaggers around and then disappears, then doesn't make the calls he or she is willing, you know, has said they're going to make or doesn't give the gift they said they were going to give or, And you can tell whether somebody's like that by watching how they behave in other, and have behaved in other circumstances. But you don't want that. You need to test out or ask around and find out how people behave before you ask them to be a campaign chair. And if you find that they again and again talk a big game and don't come through, that is not a good quality in a campaign chair. You're up next, Amy. What's your what's your favorite? Yeah, well, I'm enjoying some in the chat box. So I want people to keep putting in there. So Judy's saying resilient. You want somebody that's resilient. Elizabeth says a significant influencer within the community that's engaged in the mission. They must be, they must care about the mission. Uh, Carol says a great facilitator, able to be, to herd cats by role modeling first. Uh, Amy's saying a good campaign chair is someone who leans into it. You need them to feel passionate about your cause and willing to give their testimony in donor meetings. Yep. So, so many great, so many great yeah. thoughts. Um, it's well respected on the board and within the community. Boy, yeah. that goes a long way. And it's not always the loudest person, right? Speaking of who speaks up, sometimes you have people who are incredibly well, um, well respected, who are actually quite quiet. But when they talk, everyone listens. 
Isn't there an old Anne like that? <laughs> the Philadelphia Inquirer? Anyway, so doesn't matter. The, the other thing that we haven't touched on yet when it comes to campaign leadership is the idea of co-chairs. So sometimes there's not just one person who stands out or has all the qualities and characteristics that you want in a leader. So you might, that's where you might explore the idea of co-chairs because somebody might represent or embody some of these qualities and characteristics and then somebody else in the community might have some of the other qualities and characteristics and it's okay uh, to have to have co-chairs I think you know and people feel good about splitting the responsibility and splitting the burden um, and so that's a nice way to go when you don't have you know when there may be not one perfect person and probably there's never a perfect person. Um, there are lots of great people and you just need to find them. Yeah. The more people you have co-chairing your campaign, the more space there is between the chairs. So it needs strong leadership to be sure that each of the co-chairs knows what their job is and what their job isn't and who's going to be doing what. And you need to be able to get those people together so it's a well-coordinated effort, right? Somebody might be the external voice. I know one of our advisors, Paula Peter, who is incredibly effective, she actually thinks about having chairs for different phases of the campaign, right? She'll have a chair for the leadership gift phase of the campaign. She'll have a chair for the campaign the campaign kickoff. She'll have a chair for the public face of the campaign. So you can think about, about developing, if, you, if, if one person is not the obvious chair and willing to step up, you can, de you can define it that way as well. Yeah, so, and Amy's, Amy's reminding us that it, it shouldn't have to be said, and we haven't said it, but it does need to be said that the, the campaign chair needs to make an early and, and, as large as they can gift. It doesn't have to be the top three gifts to the campaign, but they definitely need to make a large gift for their own personal budget and be able to honestly say that they've stretched their giving and uh, they need to make their gift early, of course. So thank you, Amy, for adding that, of course. All right, whose question do you wanna go to next, Andrea? Miriam, Miriam's question. Uh, we have a non-board member whose spouse serve, serves on the board and really does their giving. And she thinks all board members should ask, should be askers for the capital campaign. That's not the way it should work. Although we've said this in other trainings, uh, let's see, including those with our advisor, how can I help reinforce the idea that not everyone has to ask and other ideas that we've talked about for more than a year during board meetings. Um, so you have to you have to find out what's behind it, right? If someone is peculiarly deaf, right, to something, there is a reason for it. And if you can start, if you can talk to that person and find out what the reason is, it's going to help you change that that perception. So it may be that she, for example, was involved in a campaign where no one else asked for money, where she was the only person ever to do it. And she got annoyed, right? It may, I mean, find out what's on her mind. It may be that she would be perfectly comfortable if people played various and sundry roles in the asking process. 
but but I would I would actually not I would try to stop talking at her, try to stop telling her and try to get her help solve the problem. Right. Find a way to get her to discuss it. She will find her way out of it better than you're going to force her out of it. And so in private, a, not in not private. at the board meeting or right. not at a committee meeting. Right. Offer to take her to coffee or, you know, if you're social distancing on Zoom, just invite her and maybe her spouse if, you know, they're both involved together and say, listen, you know, you've been raising this issue that everybody needs to ask for the campaign. Tell me more about that, right? Tell me why you feel so strongly about that. And, you know, have you ever been a part of an organization where everybody asked or everybody didn't ask? And how did that feel? And how did that come about? So ask lots of good questions. I think that that's, um, you know, really smart. You know, you may want to share an example. I have a great example of a time where when a board member went to ask, uh, they asked for way less than we had talked about asking for. And if they had just been involved in other parts, making the introduction, doing some cultivation, um, and hadn't been involved in the ask, we actually would have gotten a much bigger gift because they were so nervous that they they really lowballed it. Um, and so sometimes it actually can be more productive uh, to not have them involved, but save that until you ask lots of questions. I mean, that may or may not go over well, depending on how the conversation's going. She may not be receptive to it. She may not hear it if she's not being logical. So ask, go with Andrea's first, ask lots of questions. You know, and every, every time, I, I think it's really so tempting when somebody seems to be stuck on a certain idea that seems counterproductive to you, but they're stuck on it. And and the, what we tend to do is to try to tell them more and more loudly what we want them to know, right? And I probably said this on this call in years past when I was at a at a meeting um, as a consultant, and I, you know, they people weren't listening to what I was trying, what I was saying. They weren't. They didn't want to go where I wanted them to go. And I kept being more and more strident about it. And after the meeting, a lovely older gentleman, I was like in my thirties, right? And he pulled me over. He said, Andrea, I said, I have a piece of advice for you. I said, oh, what's that? He said, you know, sometimes it's good to turn up the volume, but sometimes it's better to change the channel. Yeah, I really need to take that seriously. How am I, How could I have changed the channel? How could I have given it over to the group? How could I, could I have said, you know what, I've been trying and trying to get you to, to believe this, but it's clear you don't want to. Tell me what's going on. Tell me what you think we should do. Well, you know what, they might well have talked themselves into what I wanted them to do originally if I had just given them space for it. So try not try turning down the volume and changing the channel and handing the question right back to them. You may well be surprised, actually. That's a great question. Thanks for asking it. All right. So, Kathy, uh, you know, we always joke on this call, the longer the question and the more detail you give us, the harder it is for us to answer because, you know, reading people's questions and getting the details right and, and talking at the same time is challenging. I think the gist is that there are people on your board or someone on your board who's the CEO of another nonprofit. And there's always this conflict 
and and I, you know, maybe I'm getting the gist of it wrong, but I think what the question is is how do you deal with somebody who sits on your board and another board or has a priority to raise money for another organization in addition to your organization? And, you know, that is a major challenge. And sometimes we come up across organizations that that are filled with executive directors of other organizations because they're there for their expertise. But you know, when it comes to fundraising, their priority is always going to be with the organization they run and less so with your organization. Uh, Andrea, is that how you're reading the question? And do you have any fabulous answers, brilliant wisdom for Kathy? Uh, Amy, I was reading other questions. All right, so I'll keep talking. Well so, all right. So, you know, if anybody has experience with that, feel free to put it in the chat, help Kathy out. Um, but I, I think you want to sit down with them and talk to them. And the reality is that, you know, maybe it's not a perfect match for them to be on your board. I don't know if that's an option or not. And you can also say, listen, for the next two years or three years, while this we're in this campaign, we're going to ask that this organization be the priority. If that doesn't work for you because there's a conflict, um, okay. So Kathy, I think we need to talk about this on, offline. You're say, telling me that this is not an option. Um, we probably, uh, you know, your question is so specific. I don't think it applies to most people here on the call. So why don't you set up a time to talk with us, send us an email and we'll talk about your question offline. So Ellen has asked, I would love to hear more ideas about how to create a fundraising culture on the, on our board. We have some attention to fundraising, but it seems uh, less important than most other other agenda items. So it's an interesting question of what you mean by a fundraising a fundraising culture. And I've kind of wrestled wrestled with that phrase. You know, that's one of these wonderful phrases that when you really stop to think about it, I don't really know what it means. It, you know, at one point I mentioned it to somebody and they said, well, don't you mean a, a, a culture of philanthropy? What is a what is a fundraising culture? And you know, Ellen, I don't mean to call you out on this. A lot of people use this phrase, so it just gives me an opportunity to say, well, what do we really mean mean by that? And perhaps if we start to understand what we really mean by that, we can then address what it would take to get there. Right? If, if, if we leave it vague, it's sort of a culture where people think fundraising is important. It doesn't get us very far. If we think that every person in the, on the board should be given an opportunity to seriously consider making a gift, that's something I can pull together a group of people and come up with a plan for. So it's hard to answer that broadly, but if you can come up with some specific things that you think would lead the organization towards a culture of philanthropy, whatever that is, then you can start pecking away at pecking away at those um, and just try some little ones and then kind of piggyback them one on top of the other. Right. Just now I, I want to talk about Renata's question. Who Renata has a board chair who thinks that that their campaign is so unique that they can just send out brochures and that people will send them money. Right. And that's going to be the end of their campaign. Right. Now, of course, if you're just trying to raise $10,000, that may be the case. Right? You, can, you can raise some money that way. But of course, that's not the way campaigns function. 
And how do you get your board chair to change his tune? And one of the ways to think about that is to find out who in your community does your board chair respect, who knows, who has had successful experience with a campaign doing it the right way, right? And try to get, you know, invite that person in to talk to your board chair or to talk to your board about how their campaign worked, right? See if you can get some information on the side coming in and talking to your board chair. Or, I mean, if your board doesn't sound like your board chair thinks that he is teachable, he sounds like he doesn't want to be teachable. Um. Amy, I'm not hearing you for some reason. How's that? Yeah. Uh, some Sometimes it comes down to math. So, you know, if you have a million dollar goal and you're sending this mailing to, you know, 2000 people and, you know, normally for your annual fund, they give X. And, you know, even if you double it, right, let's pretend everybody who normally gives doubles their gifts, you can show them that it won't get to your campaign goal or anywhere close. Um, and, you know, the reality is that in in mailings, you know, a good response rate is something like 5%. I haven't looked in the statistics in years, you know, a, a, a average response rate is like 1% or something. So, you know, I think sometimes there's some math that goes into it and looking at a gift range chart can help with some of that. Um, that, you know, the reality is that the going public should raise the last 20 to 30% of your campaign goal. Um, and you you shouldn't be able to get there with a mailing doing that kind of math. I don't know. Andrea, do you have different thoughts on that? Yeah, I think math is math is good. Math helps actually looking to see how a gift range chart is the mo world's most wonderful tool to get people to understand how campaigns work. Right. You. It's, you know, when you look at how many donors are on your list and you look at how many gifts you would need to have if you just brought in gifts in small amounts, that pretty quickly stops people on their tracks. And when you show them a gift range chart that shows, the you know, if you've got gifts at the top, what difference that would make, so it, you know, it often often gets people thinking differently. So I think that's I think that's really good advice. Um, you know, sometimes these things are just a matter of ego and that's just so frustrating. I just... Uh, somebody's asked, how do you overcome people's natural fear of fundraising? Uh, right. Hold on, Andrea. I want to go to Meg's comment okay. who says we've raised 800,000 by mail completely as a result of our amazing campaign committee chairs. But I get this is completely not typical. So Meg, I would push back and say, imagine how you how much you could have raised if you went out and asked in person. My guess is that that is a teeny tiny fraction. So 800,000, you know, it's all relative. Um, that might be a small amount of money. It might be a big amount of money. But my guess is that you could raise 10 times that if you went out and talked to a few of those donors. Nobody is sending in a major gift by mail. It, it just you know, unless you're writing personal specific letters to them. So, um, and, you know, having conversations in advance. So I don't know what you mean by mail here. Maybe you had some conversations with a few individual donors first. Um, but anyways, so 
So to me, you know, to think that a general mailing bulk solicitation campaign would raise what you would raise in a campaign if you went out and talked to people in person is is not realistic. Um, so anyways, okay. Sorry, Andrea, whose question? You oh, were looking at uh, somebody's fear of fundraising, fear right? Of fundraising. Everybody, you know, most people are afraid of fundraising. And, you know, we started this conversation talking about talking about training. You could do that as a way to begin a board meeting. They so write down three other three things that scare you about fundraising. Right. What are you nervous about? Make a big list of what you're nervous about. And what what I always I've done it always makes people laugh, but it's terrific. Make a big list. What are the things we're afraid of in fundraising? And people say, afraid that people are going to say no, afraid that I won't get in the door, afraid that I'm going to lose friends, afraid that people are going to think I'm gauche talking about money, right? Afraid. I mean, everybody has the same fears and you put a big list. And then I, I sometimes tell the story about my friend, Michael Miller, who said that once he did a training and he did that exercise and there was a woman in the back of the room who was laughing uproariously. And he couldn't resist. He said, excuse me, you know, I see you laughing. Why are you laughing? She said, oh, she said, you know that list? She said, I'm a sex counselor, right? I'm a sex therapist. And that's exactly the same list that I deal with with my clients all the time. <laughs> of course, the whole room gets laughs because it's true, right? You know, I'm afraid I don't know how to do it. I'm afraid I don't know how to write all the things people write down, apply, apply equally. So sometimes you tell that story and it's every, everybody sees that, that these fears are perfectly natural, right? And you're not going to overcome them. You're just going to help people feel more comfortable with doing something that they're uncomfortable about. And when they have some success, they will begin to get, let, to get more comfortable. So don't tell them they, should, they, have, they can't be uncomfortable. Even I'm uncomfortable when I ask people for money. Listen, I think one of the one of the exercises and, you know, really think about how you're going to introduce this topic. But, you know, you can talk about who was uncomfortable asking someone on a first date. Right. Think about a first date or think about asking for a raise. You know, there are lots of things that we're afraid of and do anyways and have a good result. Right. So. You know, who asked their future spouse on a first date and was super nervous about that, right? Who asked for a raise and got a raise, but you were super nervous. So it's kind of the same idea. You can also give people awards for doing things they were nervous about being successful, right? You can you can give courage awards. You know, who's got the courage? You know, but but don't pretend it's not real. It is real. And and more people are nervous have a fear of fundraising than you would imagine. So make it real, give it life, give it people an opportunity to talk about, and then say, now let's go raise some money. Right? So that's that's the way forward. So Lauren has asked if we have successful examples of successful campaigns and what made them successful that she could highlight. You know, we have a lot of we collectively have a lot of examples of successful campaigns. And the, what makes them successful is that they go about campaigns in the right way. They focus on identifying, cultivating and asking the people who could give the largest gifts first. They have an exciting and a compelling case for support, right? They, they, they don't go and ask broadly people who don't yet know them. So they follow the best practices. If I were you, Lauren, I would look to see what the, what the successful campaigns in your community are. 
And I would invite an executive director or a campaign chair to come and talk to your board about why their campaign was successful. There's nothing like someone who has credibility in your community. Right. And we are excited to have a lot of success. We're actually just hearing more and more success stories these days. So but but I don't think that's going to change your board's mind. But someone in the community might be able to change to help your board. All right. So I just want to remind everybody looking at the clock. There's so many good questions we got today. We're always happy to talk to you individually about your specific campaign challenges. So I would encourage you to go to the Capital Campaign Toolkit website, which is just capitalcampaigntoolkit.com and uh, go ahead and sign up for a strategy session. There are lots of ways to talk to us or feel free to just send us an email. Uh, I'm Amy at capitalcampaigntoolkit.com and Andrea is Andrea at capitalcampaigntoolkit.com. So we would be always happy to answer your questions and talk to you one-on-one or uh, type in your question early uh, next time. Of course, next week is Labor Day, so we'll be taking the week off, but we will see you two weeks from today. Andrea, any final words of wisdom? Yes, Janine from Hawaii has said mahalo, and we say that back to you, that I think is the Hawaiian goodbye and thank you, and it's a Hawaiian hug, right? Is that right? <laughs> anyway, we greet you all. Thank you for joining Hi, us. Andrea. Amy, I'm glad you could join us. It's always much more fun to do this with you. I would have gotten through it, but yes. not as well. So, right. I'm happy being Bye, on everybody. Bye, everybody. See you soon. Happy end of summer. Yes. Thanks for joining Amy and Andrea for today's All About Capital Campaigns. To learn more about them and their work together, go to capitalcampaigntoolkit.com.